Holy Father, we are but one company of Christians who have gathered on this, your holy day, to offer you the praise and love of our hearts and the commitment of our lives. But make us conscious, Heavenly Father, of the fact that we are but one company among thousands upon thousands of others that have this day and are still this day lifting up their voices in the praise of our great God and Savior. We're conscious of this, perhaps especially today with so many of our number elsewhere in the world and the, and the state. We have that group that's worshiping with the Cambridge Presbyterian Church in England this Lord's Day, and a number of us are in Yakima or White Swan to enjoy the dedicatory a service for the new building of uh, Sacred Road and Hope Fellowship there. And uh, as they worship there and we worship here and thousands upon thousands of other congregations all over the world worship you, Lord, add our praise, our love, our commitment to the whole and receive the world's praise, love. And commitment. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.
Let us worship God. I chose for our opening hymn, John Newton's magnificent, glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God, because it trades on the same history we're going to read in, excuse me, Joshua 24, an account uh, in brief of the Lord's dealings with Israel since the time he made his covenant with Abraham. That history, we're going to say, is our history. And that is exactly the point that John Newton is making with his great hymn. All of those things that happened to Israel, they happened to us as well in uh, related ways. 345.
seated, please. And now to prayer and the confession of our sins. And now God's people together from the heart. You, O Lord, have promised that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us. Humbly we come seeking your forgiveness that we may know the joy of your presence, the light of your face. You alone know our hearts, how often we have offended you, how often we have offended others. Forgive us, Lord, for every unkind thought, every false word, every wrong act. Forgive us, for we have lived not for you, but for ourselves. Forgive us for failing to give you thanks, for our neglect of prayer, our ignorance of your word, our loss of purpose. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. Create in us clean hearts and renew a right spirit within us. By the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. One of the last words spoken by the Lord Jesus to his church is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, the last of the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor. You remember that last letter to the church in Laodicea, stern in its condemnation of their lukewarmness and their pride, their lack of humility and faith and obedience. But that letter ends with this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That statement was addressed to Christians whose lives were in serious disarray. But still the Lord stood ready to forgive, if only they would repent, confess their sins, and come to him. We've sought to do so. So believe in the forgiveness of your sins. It is your duty in worship to believe it. And then to confess the means by which it has come to you through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Before the throne of God above, confess your faith.
continue to confess your faith, now giving answer to this question from the Heidelberg Catechism. We have been delivered from our misery by God's grace alone through Christ, and not because we have earned it. Why then must we still do good? To be sure, Christ has redeemed us by his blood. But we do good because his spirit is also renewing us to be like himself, so that in all our living we may show that we are thankful to God for all he has done for us, and so that he may be praised through us. And we do good so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Be seated, please. That we may show by our living that we are thankful to God. That's the purpose of reading the law of God in worship, which we do now. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount these Lord's Day mornings. We've come to the final paragraph of chapter 6, beginning with verse 25. The ESV, the English Standard Version, is there in front of you if you need to use uh, the Pew Bible so that we're all reading exactly the same translation. Make your promise to God, reading from Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, to the end of the chapter. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? The lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now add to the expressions of your heart and your lips, that of your hand, your tithes and offerings.
It is the Bible itself that teaches us to sing doxologies, short, tuneful ascriptions of praise to God. Each of the five books of the Psalter, the book of Psalms, ends with such a doxology, the second one with this, that we're about to sing as we present ourselves and our gifts to God. Joshua chapter 24, just the first 13 verses, the first paragraph as the ESV editors have divided the chapter. Chapter 24 contains the second and last of Joshua's farewell addresses to Israel, the first of which, uh, found in chapter 23, the previous chapter we considered last Lord's Day morning. This chapter concludes the fourth and final section of the book of Joshua. The key word, the leitvort of which section we said, is the Hebrew verb to serve. That word occurs 16 times in Joshua chapter 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. So this is not the entire nation before Joshua, but the nation in its representative form. Shechem, if you remember, was the site of an earlier covenant renewal ceremony, of which we read in chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. One of the reasons Shechem figured so prominently in Israel's early history in the Promised Land was because it had figured prominently in Abraham's personal history some six centuries before. It was at Shechem, if you remember, that God first promised to give Abraham the land of Canaan. You read that in Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. So it was natural that Israel should gather at Shechem to renew the covenant that had been made first on that same spot 600 years before. Now, what we have in chapter 24 is the report of a covenant renewal ceremony. And as such, it bears the marks of the literary form common to ancient Near Eastern international treaties or covenants. It was noticed some years ago in the middle of the 20th century that the biblical covenantal material in Exodus and Deuteronomy and here in Joshua 24 bears a resemblance to the form of those ancient treaties from the same historical period, a resemblance so striking that it could not be accidental. 
Those ancient treaties also typically began with a preamble that identified the author of the covenant or treaty, and then it followed or then followed a historical prologue that reviewed the previous history between the parties to the covenant. Those two elements are what make up the first 13 verses of Joshua 24. The biblical covenants, like the ancient treaties, describe and define the relationship between the two parties, in this case between Yahweh and Israel. For the Lord to use this literary form to describe the covenant between himself and his people was an act of accommodation on his part. It made it easier for his people to understand what was being said and what it meant. Yahweh was making a covenant with Israel like a great king would make with a lesser kingdom, one that was subservient to him. This is an example of the sort of accommodation, in fact, you find all the way through the Bible. The Song of Songs is a love poem in many ways like other ancient Near Eastern love poems. The poetry of the Psalter would have been familiar to any Israelite because it bore the marks of ancient Near Eastern poetic literature. Paul would write his letters later uh, like letters were typically written in the first century and so on. It made them easy, it made the Bible easier to understand and to appreciate. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the words, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the preamble in typical ancient Near Eastern treaty style. You can find similar words, beginning treaties from various parts of the ancient Near East around this time. Compare the first words of this covenant, as we have it here, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, with the opening words of a typical Hittite uh, treaty from the period that begins, these are the words of, or thus says, Son Supiliulumas, the great king of the Hatti land. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau to the hill country of, I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. The historical prologue begins, Joshua's review of the history of the Lord's covenant with Israel begins with Yahweh's calling Abraham out of idolatry. Abraham had served other gods. He was a typical man of his time. But then Yahweh revealed himself to Abraham and called him out of Ur and brought him to Canaan. Though Abraham and his wife had no children and were by this time old and past childbearing age, you remember that story told at length in Genesis, Yahweh gave them many descendants. But though Jacob was the son of the promise, Esau got his inheritance immediately. Jacob and his family, however, found themselves in Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt 
with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward brought you out. Now, a significant shift has occurred. Did you notice it? Up to this point in the review of the history of God's covenant with Israel, the pronouns have all been in the third person. But now for the first time we read the Lord referring to the present generation. I brought you out. From now on, it is primarily you, not they. Of course, these Israelites had not been present at the Exodus, though some of them may have been young children at the time. But this is an important point, and it serves to indicate the real purpose of the historical prologue, and not just this historical prologue, but the entire narrative history of the Bible. The history of Israel stretching back to Abraham is their History. It's an account of what the Lord has done for them. Israel would not be in the promised land. They would not possess the promised land except for all the things the Lord had already done on their behalf. As Rabbi Gamaliel put it in Paul's day, it is I who came forth out of Egypt. Remembering history in the Bible is more than simply mental recall. It is a way of participation in the history of salvation. We get this same point of view in the New Testament when Paul reminds a church of Gentiles that their forefathers were delivered from bondage in Egypt. That history was their history, even though they weren't Jews at all. But as Christians... That history had become their history, and those people had become their ancestors. So this history is not simply the history of Israel from the 20th to the 14th centuries B.C. It is our history, yours and mine. The Exodus was as much our redemption as the cross is our redemption. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. The review of the Lord's dealings with Israel next mentions the exodus from Egypt accomplished by the plagues and the destruction of the Israelite army at the Yam Suf. The words literally mean the Sea of Reeds, not the Red Sea. That is, it doesn't necessarily designate what is called the Red Sea today. The time in the wilderness mentioned at the end of verse 7 is a heading for what followed. And you lived in the wilderness a long time, and then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. The 40 years in the wilderness is summarized in two particular episodes, both of which came late in the period of the wilderness wanderings. Here we read of the victories the Lord gave Israel over Sihon and Og, Amorite kings whose kingdoms were east of the Jordan River. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. 
the, upper, the other episode was the, long, the one recounted at length in the later chapters of the book of Numbers, the effort of Balak, the king, with the help of the prophet Balaam to destroy the Israelites by divine curse, which the Lord thwarted. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. This list of peoples who inhabited Canaan that we have read a number of times in the book. And I gave them into your land. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. The short summary of Israel's history with Yahweh is concluded with the beautiful reminder that he had now given the Canaanites into Israel's hands, had delivered the land which he had long before promised would be theirs, the land flowing with milk and honey, had delivered that land with all its wealth into Israelite ownership. The metaphor of the hornet harks back to Exodus 23:28, where the Lord had told Israel in the prospect that he would send the hornet to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. It's a metaphor, obviously, the main point of which is that Israel's victories were God's doing, not hers. The main point, of course, is that God had given this land to his people. Yahweh said, by the way, and interestingly, in the next verses of that same Exodus 23 passage, that the process was going to take some time and that he would not drive the Canaanites out in a single year. Little by little he would drive them out until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. And that is precisely what we saw happening in the book of Joshua. We're reminded in this way, too, that the very large numbers of Israelites that we are given in the book of Numbers, a company in the millions, are either not to be taken literally, that is, they are hyperbole, exaggeration for effect, a very common literary device in the ancient world, or they have either been miscopied or misunderstood in some way. Israel did not have millions when they came into the promised land. Now, our Heavenly Father, we have this interesting account of all that has happened up to this point. That, too, is our history, and it is important for us to learn its lessons. So teach them to us, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, what makes this review of Israel's earlier history so significant and so helpful is that it reveals a pattern that is as obvious in our own time and circumstances, as it was long ago in the days of the conquest. Many things never change in this world. Put yourself in the place of those favored Israelites that day at Shechem. They were standing in the very place where the Lord had first made covenant with their ancestor Abraham. And part of that covenant was Yahweh's promise that that very land would someday belong to him in the person of his descendants. And now, after some 600 years, it had come to pass. They were now in possession of the land. 
How many generations of Israelites had come and gone thinking about that promise, wondering when it would be fulfilled or if it would be fulfilled. And now it had been, and they had lived to see it. Perhaps no other generation of the people of God were so favored, except that generation that witnessed the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many times during their lives do you suppose Peter or James or John had said something like, I wish my grandfather had lived to see this. Or, I wonder if Isaiah or Jeremiah, when they prophesied these days, had imagined that they would be like this. And how many times do you suppose they pinched themselves and said, I can't believe that of all the generations who have waited for these things to come to pass, it should have happened in my generation. I should have seen it. All well and good. But you and I have not been given that privilege. We have not seen one of the great prophecies of the Lord come to pass before our very eyes. And unless the Lord Jesus Christ should return in our lifetime, we're not going to. I don't mean to say that prophecy isn't being fulfilled at this very moment. Surely it is. How often does the Bible prophesy that the nations of the world will be made the disciples of Jesus Christ by the hundreds of millions from every tongue, tribe, and nation? And now they are, by the hundreds of millions in Africa, Asia, and Latin America especially. But that's not quite the same thing. That has been happening throughout the age. And the kingdom has waxed before, only to wane again for a time. To see the Lord appear in the sky with the angelic host in his train and the great company of the redeemed, that would be an entirely different sort of thing, would it not? Just as it must have been to stand at Shechem that day and to realize that the promise had been kept, that the land was theirs, the deed had been done. So for us, I think, the historical prologue is a still more useful summary of spiritual history than it was for the Israelites that day at Shechem because it tells the tale of the people of God waiting for the promise to be fulfilled but not witnessing its fulfillment with their own eyes. True, great promises were fulfilled when the Son of God, Son of God came into the world but those also, those fulfillments also now lie behind us. And we are not eyewitnesses of that history. Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses of. Nor eyewitnesses of the history that Israel was a part of that day at Shechem. So consider the pattern of this history. Consider the historical prologue. This way of God with his people. And then apply it to your own life and your own circumstances in these four particulars especially. Note in the first place the grace and mercy that accompanies God's ways with his people. This is the point with which Joshua begins. It is also the assumption of all 
of this material. Who was Abraham? Well, he was an idolater, like everybody else in Ur of the Chaldees in his day. It wasn't as if Abraham had been looking for the one living in true God and happened to find him. The Lord plucked him out of the mass of pagans among whom he lived happily and would have lived happily ever after had the Lord not drawn him to himself and taken him from Ur and settled him in Canaan as a worshiper of the one living and true God. This was a complete surprise to Abraham. It was a complete surprise to everyone who knew Abraham. But this is hard for human beings to remember, even to comprehend in the first place. The Jews would later think and later write that Abraham, even as a boy, saw through the idolatry of his culture and separated himself from it. Indeed, in the book of Jubilees, written between Malachi and the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, we read that Abraham, as a teenager, pled with his father to get rid of the family idols and worship only the God of heaven. In fact, when Abraham was 60 years of age, he was supposed to have burned down one of the local temples. In fact, his father, Terah, was supposed to have died in the fire trying to save the idols. You find a lot of this kind of thinking later on in Israel. Some rabbis taught that Israel was given the law at Sinai because God knew that only Israel could keep the commandments. Other rabbis taught that Israel was delivered from bondage in Egypt because she alone of all the peoples of the world deserved God's powerful intervention on her behalf. Now don't sneer at the Jews for thinking such things. We all think this way more often than any Christian wishes to admit. In so many ways, we think that God ought to be good to us. Well, because we are such likable people. Our attitudes give us away even when we deny hotly that we think any such thought. Why are we so often and so easily offended? Why are we so easily aggrieved? Why do we get so upset with people when they don't do what we want them to do unless we actually believe that we deserve better treatment than this? Humbug. The Bible tells a different story about Abraham and about us. He was an idolater like everybody else. And the Lord reached down and grabbed him and plucked him out of there and put him someplace else where it would be easy, easier for him to learn the truth about God and about himself. And of course the same thing is happening every day all over the world again and again. Somebody new, somebody unexpected is being added to the people of God, a convert of whom no one had thought such a thing. Or a child born to a faithful Christian home, and the kingdom of God is enlarged and continues to be enlarged. Nobody sought God. God sought him or sought her. 
No one could have predicted that Abraham would have been the patriarch of the people of God. No one in Ur would have imagined that he, of all of them, would become the friend of God and the father of the faithful. It was a complete surprise, and it was a complete surprise because it was pure, unadulterated grace that God showed to him. It was mercy to an undeserving and uninterested sinner. It was a spiritual transformation performed in and upon somebody who had no expectation of it, no desire for it, contributed nothing to it. And so it is everywhere and always. This person or that, this family or that, plucked out of darkness and placed in the kingdom of light. And so it has been from the beginning, so it must continue to be Always to the end. That must be God's way. Because all men are dead in their transgressions and sins. And all men are blind to the light. Note in the second place, the immense amount of time that had to pass before God's promises were fulfilled. True enough, the Lord told Abraham in Genesis 15 that he and his descendants could not have the promised land yet because the iniquity of the Amorite was not yet full. To give the land to Israel meant taking it away from somebody else and God wouldn't do that until he could do it in perfect justice. He gave Canaan to Israel as a free gift. He took it from the Canaanites as punishment for their vile way of life and their inveterate refusal to repent. But to reach that point... Six centuries had to pass. Esau got his inheritance right away, but Jacob and his descendants had to wait for generations to get theirs. As Charles Hodge once observed, even omnipotence works gradually. And we've just begun. Israel was in Egypt for 400 years. Do you realize how long that is? 400 years ago, in 1614, the pilgrims had not yet arrived in the New World. Young people, people didn't even have cell phones in 1614. They had to use a payphone to talk to people. And even here, at the end, it took years to conquer Canaan. The Lord may have sent the hornet before them, but the men who gathered at Shechem were perhaps most of a decade older than they had been when they first crossed into Canaan across the Jordan River. Why, even now at Shechem, there are still some Canaanites in the land who must be dispossessed. And so it has continued to be. The Christian life would be a comparative snap if only things happened more quickly than they do. If our afflictions came and went in a few days instead of sometimes months or years. If our sins were mortified pretty much as soon as we made the attempt, our prayers were heard and answered immediately, rather than, as is the case so often, only over long stretches of time. It never seems to end, does it? The Bible makes it clear that the life of faith is an endurance race for most of us, not a sprint. And a life of faith, not of sight, with the goal always just beyond the horizon. This is a very important lesson that every Christian must learn and take to heart, and every real Christian will sooner or later. Things come slowly in the life of faith, 
And there is and there must be a great deal of waiting. In fact, not infrequently in the Bible, waiting is a synonym for faith. Third, consider how mysterious, unexpected, inexplicable are the ways of God. The fact of the matter is that nothing turned out the way anybody would have guessed or imagined beforehand. The Lord brought Abraham to Canaan to give it to him, but then his descendants were to spend centuries in Egypt before they could get their next sniff of the promised land. This point is openly admitted in the historical prologue, as we read it in verse 4. Centuries later, Israel came out of Egypt on eagles' wings, but then languished for 40 years, a generation's worth of time in the wilderness because of their sin. Two and a half of the tribes were eventually settled east of the Jordan and not in Canaan itself. And the list goes on. One thing after another that was utterly unanticipated. Sometimes the result of Israel's sin. Sometimes, however, such as the famine that sent Jacob's family down to Egypt. Genuinely and immediately acts of God. Over and over again events intervened that seemingly deflected Israel off the intended course. Though clearly enough those byways were also And all along the Lord's intention. As Joseph would say about the family's arrival in Egypt, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Who would have thought at the time the Lord promised Canaan to Abraham and his descendants that there would be so much trouble, sadness, and disappointment before the land was finally theirs? And is this not just as much the story of your life? And of mine, so much happens we never anticipated. So many setbacks, disappointments, sorrows along the way. How many times have we said to the Lord, or if we dared not say it, thought about saying to the Lord, Lord, if I were you, I would not treat my children the way you are treating me. Lord, where are the blessings that you promised in your word? I have delighted myself in you. Where then are the desires of my heart? The mystery of God's ways is the burden every believing man and woman must bear in this world. And the truest test of our faith. And the Bible is very candid about this. It never denies, it never seeks to hide the fact that the ways of God are a great deep and often leave God's people in confusion and grasping for spiritual breath. In the summary of the life of faithful men and women that we are given in Hebrews 11, we read of how those who trusted in the Lord conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. But without a breath, The review of that spiritual history continues. Some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains in dens and caves of the earth. The victorious Christian life? Yes or no? Well, yes. If only you're willing to accept that there must be 
a lot of, a lot of hardship, even heartbreak, and a lot of confusion along the way. The Christian life is often described in glowing terms in the Bible, in rosy terms. And there's a reason for that. But at the same time, the Bible is relentlessly honest that along with the blessings will come many difficulties that are hard to understand. Remember how faithful King Hezekiah had been reforming the worship of Judah and the life of that people But then we read, after these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and camped against Jerusalem. Not precisely the reward we might have expected. The Lord's ways are a great deep, and they are simply past our finding out. But fourth and last, don't miss the obvious. The Lord kept his word. He fulfilled his promises Every single one of them. The fact is that Israel was now in possession of the promised land, just as the Lord had promised she someday would be. And lest you take that too much for granted, hardly a stranger, more unexpected, more unlikely thing has ever happened in the history of the world. The time of bondage had been ended by the most remarkable demonstrations of divine power, the plagues and the parting of the sea. After the victories east of the Jordan, Israel had moved into Canaan through the bed of the Jordan River again, made dry by the power of God. What is more, he had promised to lead Israel in victory against the Canaanites, a more warlike, a better equipped, a more experienced army than Israel's. And that's what he had done. In battle after battle, a smaller force of Israelites had prevailed against a larger force of Canaanites. The Canaanite chariots had been useless in battle against Israelite swordsmen. They should have proved a huge advantage, but they didn't. The hornet had indeed gone before Israel as the Lord had promised, and now the land was hers. The farmhouses she had not built, the fields she had not cleared or plowed or sown, the wells she hadn't dug, the vineyards she hadn't planted, the cities... She hadn't built. They were all hers now, hers to enjoy and hers to pass on to her children. True enough, Israel had fought her battle. She had trusted the Lord. She had obeyed his commandments. Our intentions, our self-conscious efforts to serve the Lord and fulfill his commands are not without importance, but they would never by themselves have won the promised land. That was the Lord's doing. Indeed, you may have noticed the historical prologue left out a long list of Israel's failures. Her faithlessness in Egypt, the constant whining it produced, her fear of the Egyptians those first days in the desert, her later complaining against the Lord and Moses because of the difficulties of her pilgrimage, and her abject failure to trust the Lord at Kadesh Barnea, for which a generation was consigned to die in the wilderness and never see the promised land. This was not a people who were going to take anything by themselves, much less a land thoroughly populated by a warlike and able people. This kind of demonstration of the faithfulness of God and the certainty of his word has happened only a few times in human history. Surely this was one. The appearance of the Messiah and his victory over sin and death was 
another. And of course, the Lord's return will be still a third. It's ours now not simply to recall this history, but to participate in it. And to imagine ourselves in the place, in the person of our spiritual ancestors at that moment, thinking about what we would think, rejoicing as we know we would rejoice to be among those who had been privileged to see and to participate in these things. When so many generations of believers before us had simply to trust that these things would someday come to pass and could only greet them from afar. But of course we needn't wait for the return of Christ. Remember in the typology of the Bible, Canaan is heaven. And the day will come perhaps much, much, much sooner than the second coming when we will find ourselves there in the promised land, waking to new and eternal life, sinless of heart, overcome, overwhelmed by the purest joy, beholding not only the eternal city, but the king himself. We will think, you and I, surely we will think then, that it were a well-spent journey, those seven deaths had laid between. That's the main thing here, of course. The long wait, the setbacks along the way, God's grace given to us in defiance of our ill desert, the mystery of the way things turn out, but the certainty of our eventual possession of the promised land, the guarantee of our inheritance by the power and faithfulness of God, that's the main thing here. It is because God's promise had been kept down to the single detail that Joshua is going to call upon Israel to give the Lord her heart and to remain faithful to him. And that argument is as sound today as it was then. Because God's promises are as certain of fulfillment as Israel saw them to be as they stood at Shechem, proud owners, finally, of the promised land. They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen. Our final hymn is Horatius Bonar's lovely reflection on the mystery of God's ways and the certainty of his faithfulness, 686.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Mm-hmm.